Well, hello, dipshits. Welcome to episode 57 of the Dipshit Files. I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And I'm Mrs. Scriptkeeper. And we are doing some sort of city on fire in Pennsylvania. Yes, we are. And you seem relatively excited about this one. I am. This has been a story that's fascinated me for years. I I don't even know if I've ever heard of it before. I... I, I've heard of the tire fire thing, but that's from The Simpsons, so I don't think that's quite... (laughs) This is completely different. Okay. I came across this story years ago, um, and I think it was on some type of documentary, like a... Um, Gates a, of Hell. Like a con- I think it was a conservation documentary oh. on the the adverse effects of, of mining. Oh. So I think is what I can't... But anyways, there's a lot of lore around this. Hmm. And this is... This turned into a, a quite a long script. Oh, this might be two episodes, huh? And I'm thinking... Well, I've broken it up into two episodes. The first one is what actually happened. Okay. Uh, the narrative. And the standard story of uh, what they say happened. Now, I say that because there is a whole other story with, from what I understand and what I, what I found, potential facts to support it. Really? The gate to hell is in PA? (laughs) No, 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 no. I thought it would be in New Jersey. Somewhere on the East Coast. The facts that it's the the gates to hell would mean that it's a hole in the ground with flames coming out of it, right? Right, I guess so. And so, so, yeah. Well, there's a a gate that says, you know, all who enter here should be pumped. I referenced that in my script. Nice. Let's let's fucking get into it. All right. Let's open up the dipshit files. On a one-mile stretch of Highway 61 in Pennsylvania that was long ago abandoned, one might find themselves wondering, what happened here? What happened? This portion of highway, closed, is rippled and cracked as if some powerful force from within the earth had broken through and escaped. Uh-oh. If you're lucky, you might even catch wisps of smoke floating from the cracked highway into the sky above, a sign that something very large and very hot lives just under the surface. And right off the stretch of broken and smoking highway, you'd find yourself in Centralia, Pennsylvania. Although, you probably wouldn't know you were in a town that historically was once so important to the daily lives of so many people. You wouldn't know that as you walked along unseen streets, a blazing inferno hungrily burned beneath your feet. You might pass by cracked sidewalks and broken street signs, hints that Life had once bustled and thrived here, but now it's difficult for even trees to grow, as their roots have died and withered away long ago. Now it's time to learn about the city on fire. It's no surprise, then, to know that Centralia, Pennsylvania, inspired the 2006 horror film Silent Hill. And it's not hard to see why some believe that this abandoned town could be the portal to hell itself. Mm. Abandon hope all ye who enter here yeah. To quote Dante's Divine Comedy Yeah As you move through the town You might find yourself reminded Of more well-known ghost towns Like Chernobyl or Pripyat in Ukraine Places where tragedy tr- struck so hard That humanity no longer had a place there And then as the creepy chill settles into your bones You might want to cut your visit short Get back into your car 
and drive on to a place where you can hear the birds chirping again, <laughs> to a place where grass actually grows and humans can live without fear of illness or death. A place that Centralia, Pennsylvania once was, but will never be again. Uh. Today, we take a break from the darker and heavier topics on the dipshit files and escape to the strange and unknown to explore Centralia. Okay. An isolated town nestled in a high-end, narrow valley of the Appalachian Mountains of eastern central Pennsylvania. That sounds like Philly's fan country there. Located about 125 miles southeast of Philadelphia, Centralia was once a beautiful mountain village that had made its name in coal mining in the mid-1800s. It's also the location of an underground fire that has been burning since 1962. Shit. And that is expected to burn for at least another hundred years. Damn. The fire is believed to have been started when a local landfill was set on fire and the flames accidentally spread to the labyrinth of abandoned coal mines located underneath the town. Hmm. That's the official narrative, at least. And despite multiple efforts and millions of dollars spent to extinguish the fire, it has continued to burn for decades. Hmm releasing toxic gases and causing sinkholes to form in the area, making the town uninhabitable. I was going to say that probably lowers the resale value of those homes. Forcing most of Centralia's residents to pack up and leave. Mm. But that was after decades of living in the dangerous and extremely unhealthy conditions that is mine, that this mine fire has created. And these conditions turned Centralia from a really wholesome, tight-knit town into a hellscape, literally. Yeah. It probably poisoned a lot of people, but there's probably two or three that got superpowers. <laughs> that follows from what I've learned from watching TV over the last few decades. For example, a fiery sinkhole opened up under a child as he was playing in his yard. Just out of nowhere. Probably deserved it. There was no sinkhole. Everything's fine. Boy's playing outside. Then sinkhole appears underneath him out of nowhere, and he falls in. Damn, that'll teach you not to listen to your mama. Now, we're going to talk about that, but it's crazy to think about this place where you've always lived, this place where many generations of your family had lived, probably. All of a sudden, it transforms into a location where it's not safe or healthy for you and your family to be anymore. Centralia is now a morbid tourist attraction, and it's also been used in, as a filming location for several horror films and television shows, which makes a lot of sense. Are we because... talking about San Francisco? I'm sorry. <laughs> I kid. I kid. I'm from there. Come on. It, it makes a lot of sense because from what I, I've seen, it truly is a creepy location. But let's go back. Let's take in a little history of this town because it's rich and, and really quite interesting, I think, in my research. I, I was fascinated. Better hope the rest of us agree. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> let's dive deeper into the history of this here place. Centralia has some of the most fascinating early American history that I've come across in a while. In fact, this story about Centralia and the mine fire has anything and everything that you would want in a story. Mm. There's money and power, true legends of secret societies operating in the town, and a murder that shook the tight-knit community to its core. Plus Brad Pitt. Corruption, cover-up, and conspiracy. And of course, we can talk about the curse that was allegedly placed on Centralia in 1869 by a priest named Father McDermott. Who, in my mind, will be played by John Travolta. However, before we get lost in the story, let's take a moment to remember that at its core... 
What we're talking about today is a story about something horrible that happened to an entire town of people who had no control over the outcome. An entire town of people who struggled, suffered, and fought to keep their homes intact as forces beyond their control tore everything apart. Now, there may be some who wonder, why didn't these people just leave? Why did it take so long for most of them to finally give up on Centralia? Well, it's because they didn't pray hard enough. Well, in the beginning, some people did leave. A lot of them left. And as the years went on, a lot more left. But many of them were resistant to just packing up and moving out, even when things got really bad. Even when people were getting sick and kids were falling into sinkholes that appeared out of nowhere and family pets were falling asleep and never waking up. They still didn't want to leave. I get it. And honestly... As hard as the decision would be for me, I'd run. I mean, when you have to buy a bird to keep in your house to warn you that there's lethal levels of carbon monoxide in your home, it's time to go, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, there's no question that this region of Pennsylvania is not the prettiest, but that's not the location's fault. It's due to centuries of humans digging into the earth with shovels and hammers and later giant machines, and they removed the enormous and plentiful deposits of anthracite coal that was in the ground there, the most valuable, oldest, and precious type of coal. It's millions and millions of years old. Fun fact, it's usually found with kyber crystals, which is a Star Wars, sorry. It's a Star Wars thing, sorry. I'm a nerd. (laughs) I nerded. I don't know why. Okay. Yeah. Well, when they were done draining each pocket of coal (laughs) deposits, they left the earth battered and bruised, and they moved on to do it all over again, leaving behind abandoned mines and a battered landscape. Now... It also could be Centralia's centuries-long history of coal mining that may be the root of why its residents fought to remain in their homes as well. Hmm. Five billion tons of coal had been removed from this land by immigrants and their descendants. Hmm. They came from England, Germany, and Ireland, smitten by the idea of the American dream, hoping for a better life, and for their descendants, that is still what Centralia represents. A happy life, a job, a a means of providing for your family, friends, and community. It's believed that the hard and dangerous work in the mines had forged social ties in Centralia and other anthracite communities in Pennsylvania that are much stronger than those found in many other places. It's thought that the men who entered the mines together every day, they needed to be able to rely on each other. And they looked out for each other. They kept each other alive. That bond and the trust that was needed to build that bond, it didn't stay in the mines. It left with the miners at the end of every day and spilled over into their daily lives. The people you worked with were not just buddies or co-workers. They were family. And their family was also your family, and you took care of each other no matter what. Those first immigrant coal miners had children, and those children played together. And those children grew up to marry each other and have children of their own who also played together and so on and so forth. And that's how you get a family pole. Not a family tree. Centralia was called home, but it was more than that. It was the foundation for decades of tradition and unbreakable family and community ties. So as this story progresses and you find yourself asking, why the fuck didn't they just move? Right. Remember that this is a story about people whose lives were turned upside down, who to this day, for those of them who are still surviving, they still feel the loss of their homes, their communities, and their history. Yeah. 
So speaking of history, let's talk about the history of Centralia, Pennsylvania, shall oh. we? Yes, let's challenge. Okie dokie. Here's a little break with music in it that's not necessary at all. <laughs> a bit of history it is going to provide context as well as showing how events piled on top of each other until it all toppled over and these people no longer had any control. Hmm. Centralia, Pennsylvania lies in the heart of the anthracite region, which is, which is a historical mining area covering about 500 square miles in northeastern Pennsylvania. And this area is known for its abundance of anthracite coal, which was once a major source of fuel for homes, industry, and transportation. And they got a lot of crazy Eagles fans, too. <laughs> this region was invaluable to the rest of the nation in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Today, this area of Pennsylvania is basically forgotten. The residents of this area are quiet and mostly keep to themselves. They don't really interact with the outside world. But back in the day, this area was thriving. This is where all the activity was happening and where coal companies were going to open their businesses and start mining. Because of this, it developed into a very financially well-off area and grew into the heart of the coal mining industry in the United States. Boom. It was responsible for producing the majority of the country's anthracite coal. In fact, 96% of all anthracite in the U.S. can be found in Pennsylvania. And this is important because when it comes to coal, anthracite is where it's at. Anthracite is more expensive than other types of coal because it has a higher carbon content and it burns more cleanly with fewer emissions. But also, it has a very high energy content, which means it produces more heat per unit of fuel than other types of coal. So it's, it's bougie coal. It's bougie coal. I never use that term right. So then you can see why it may be very appealing to people who are using coal at this time to heat their homes. Hmm. Additionally, anthracite is actually very difficult to ignite because it has such a high carbon content and a low volatile matter, which means it doesn't release gas easily when heated and therefore requires much higher temperatures to ignite. Its high carbon content means it also burns very slowly with little flame. However, once anthracite coal is lit, it burns with a hot and consistent flame that can reach temperatures of up to 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Shit, so, dense power. It takes a lot to set it on fire, but once lit, it burns hot and fast, and it's hard to put out. This is something that the people of Centralia, Pennsylvania, would discover centuries after anyone in the past had even discovered that there were millions of tons of anthracite coal hidden beneath the flanks of the great Appalachian Mountains. And honestly, it took a little while for anyone to figure this out, or, well, at least capitalize on it. Hmm. Colonial settlers had explored some areas of the anthracite region in Pennsylvania as early as 1770. And they were there scouting out regions for the Reading Road, which is a transportation road. (laughs) I was going to throw that in there. It's not that. (laughs) Sorry. Reading Road is a transportation route that was meant to connect Reading, Pennsylvania, which is 50 miles south of the valley that Centralia lies in, to Fort Augusta, which at this time was a British military frontier outpost in central Pennsylvania that was built along the Susquehanna River to provide protection for early European settlers and to serve as a base for military operations during the French and Indian War. Hmm. Now, Reading Road wasn't even like a road as we know it. It's just like this dirt path initially. 
But in 1793, a man named Robert Morris acquired the land that would one day become Centralia. And he added this land to his vast wilderness empire. (laughs) Robert Morris was extremely interesting. He was an interesting historical figure and an important one, not just to Pennsylvania, but to the whole United States. He was born in Liverpool, England in 1734, and he immigrated to America when he was a teenager. In 1764, at the age of 30, Morris had a successful career as a merchant and financier in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And was the following year, he was running with the Sons of Liberty. They have a flag that says, don't be a cunt. In 1765, Morris joined many others in protesting and opposing British tax policies, such as the Stamp Act. And by 1775, he was the richest man in America. Yeah, but did he have a rocket? 1775 was also the same year that the American Revolution started, and Morris helped finance the war. Okay, I guess cannons count as rockets. As well as made it possible for the outgunned and outmanned American forces to procure weapons and ammunition as they fought for their independence, causing him to forever be known as the financier of the revolution. Hmm. Robert Morris's name can be found on the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the United States Constitution. So you're saying he may have heard of the Illuminati. He established the Bank of North America. Illuminati confirmed. He's considered one of our founding fathers, and along with Alexander Hamilton, he's widely regarded as one of the founders of the U.S. financial system. Uh, But the most interesting thing about Robert Morris, in my opinion, is how much land he bought for apparently no reason. I mean... Obviously, he had reasons. For instance... World domination for Satan. Land which would appreciate in value over time, that would be a profitable investment, right? Mm-hmm. Well... You would think so. And it would be. And it would have been, actually, if he'd done it a little differently. Oh. And he also felt that the expansion of settlements and the cultivation of land would help drive economic growth and prosperity to this young country. And that's true. It did that. But... But also, it looks like Morris bought some of this land to settle debts that he'd incurred during the war, Hmm. the Revolutionary War, a war he personally helped finance by taking out personal loans, which he would then have to eventually repay. And apparently the brand new United States, you know, they were broke and they didn't have any money to pay him back for his help. So this would end up being his financial undoing. You start one revolution. By the 1790s, Robert Morris was considered the largest landholder in the United States, personally owning over six million acres of land throughout multiple states, including much of western New York, the land that would one day become Washington, D.C., and one million acres in Pennsylvania. Hmm. Unfortunately, Morris... Morris, Sylvania. <laughs> unfortunately, Morris overextended himself. A little bit. He was land rich, but cash poor, and eventually he was no longer able to pay his debts, which landed him in creditor's prison for three years in Philadelphia. And in 1798, Morris officially declared bankruptcy, and much of his land, including the valley that would become Centralia one day, was turned over to the Bank of the United States. I mean, you'd think they'd be like, hey, man, sorry, we know you gave us so much money during the war. We're just we're just going to take your land. Yeah, we'll take all the stuff you got. You don't, you don't have to go to prison. You know, like one thing should have happened. Either he didn't go to prison or he didn't get to take it. He didn't get his land taken. But they, they were like, hey, no one asked you to help us, man. <laughs> no, no good <laughs> no, deed goes unpunished. No one asked for your help. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, anyways. 
no deed goes unpunished. Well, well said. Yeah. So Robert Morris would die impoverished on May 9th, 1806. Wow. And obviously, I don't need to point out the irony or the tragedy that a man who was instrumental in building the financial system of this country, a man who was once considered to be the richest man in the United States, as well as the biggest landholder, died penniless. It's really kind of sad. There's some people that are like, yeah, fuck you, buddy. I, just I mean, he really did put a lot of his own money on the table to help win the war. And if he hadn't have done that, he probably would have been all right. Mm. He probably would have been a wealthy man for the rest of his life. And that's just kind of shows you, especially back then, you could make a fortune really quick. Mm. But you could also lose it in the blink of an eye. Right. So it's just a really interesting story. Yeah. Morris is still considered a very important figure in Pennsylvania and in the United States. But after he lost the land, the future site of Centralia, Pennsylvania, was purchased in an auction for $30,000 by a man named Stephen Girard. And this guy is super interesting and also has a pretty cool story. Stephen Girard was born in Bordeaux, France in 1750, and he faced a lot of challenges early on. He was the son of a poor sailor. He never received a formal or proper education, and he lost one of his eyes when he was just eight years old. Despite his very humble beginnings, Gerard would become known as the man who single-handedly saved the United States government from financial collapse during the War of 1812. And he did this by essentially funding the war with his own money. Again, hmm. different guy, same story. Mm-hmm. Stephen Girard is known to be the first multimillionaire in U.S. history, and he's estimated to have been the fourth richest American of all time. Mm. But you never hear about him, though. I, I mean, mean, when I was doing my research, I never heard of this guy. No, I haven't. I mean, either. you heard about the Rockefellers and Carnegie and oil tycoons and things like that, but you don't hear about Stephen Girard. Mm-mm. And you might wonder, how did the son of a, four, a, a poor French sailor become such an integral figure in U.S. history? Aliens. Where did he get the money to fund the war and then save the day for our country? Wizardry. Well, in 1760, Girard traveled as a cabin boy on a ship to New York City. He was 10 years old, and once he was there, he began learning the ropes of the mercantile trade that was happening at the time between New York, well, usually New York City, and then New Orleans and the West Indies. So in 1773, he became a licensed sea captain, and he started running his own trade routes. Now, I thought this was kind of interesting. So he lost an eye when he was eight, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, now he is a sea captain. Arr. Running. <laughs> I wonder who wore an eye patch. <laughs> Arr, maybe. But in 1776, during the tensions between the British and the Americans in the Revolutionary War, British blockades, which, well, they were their ships, basically, prevented Stephen Girard from sailing back into New York Harbor. So he ended up in the port of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he was like, huh. Yeah, I kind of like it here. Mm. So he got off his ship. He met a woman. He got married. He made a home. And he opened several businesses, such as liquor and grocery stores. By 1790, Stephen Girard had amassed a fortune of $6,000. And he'd put together a small fleet of trading vessels. So $6,000 might not seem like a lot. I mean... Sounds like plenty to me. I think it's a lot. No, But, you know, it's not like you're swimming around in your money vault. Right. You know, it's not that kind of fortune. But just so you know, in today's money, $6,000 is just under Hmm. $200,000. I I would take that, too. Thanks, inflation. (laughs) 
Using that money, Gerard made more money. And by the time he died, he was in possession of a personal fortune worth $9 million, which today would be something like $300 million. I mean, so that's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. So so I was writing this. And now I know the new thing that everyone's doing, the, the trendy thing, is to hate anything that's early American history. Right. Uh, we have to hate the founding fathers and rip their statues down. We have to hate the early European settlers and anyone who had or currently has any money. I know. Right. That's what's popular nowadays. I mean, fine. Do what you want. But Stephen Gerard was a badass. You have to admit. <laughs> okay. And he was an inspiration. Well, I don't have to do shit. And the epitome of the actual American dream when that was still possible. Could he be a ruthless businessman? Sure. But he was also very, very selfless. And because of him, many people's lives were made better. So get this. During the 1793 yellow fever outbreak, while everyone who had any kind of money was fleeing the city of Philadelphia, Gerard stayed behind. And he not only supervised the conversion of a mansion on the outskirts of town into a medical ward, but he also recruited nurses and volunteers. And he even personally cared for sick sick patients with his own hands. Hmm. And he did the same thing the following yellow fever outbreak. Stephen Gerard was always active in charitable causes all through his life. He gave tons of money to charity, specifically charities that dealt with education, poverty, and orphans, which I'll point out was a cause that Alexander Hamilton was also passionate about orphans because Alexander Hamilton was an orphan. Hmm. And at the time of Stephen Gerard's death in 1831, much of his fortune went to various public charities in the city because he and his wife never had any children. And so he basically just gave all his money away to these good causes. But before he died, Stephen Gerard caught wind that there was valuable anthracite coal in the mountains of Pennsylvania. So he bought up Robert Morris's land And he waited for a coal mining company to offer him a hefty price for it, which did happen in 1842 when the land was purchased by the Locust Mountain Coal and Iron Company. So they bought the land from Girard and a mining engineer with a company named Alexander Rea moved to the location with his family and he got right to work basically making this a town, laying out streets and drafting plans for a village. He named the town Centerville, but in 1865, that name was changed to Centralia when it was discovered that there was already a Centerville in nearby Shellkill County. I bet that was a fun conversation. Alexander Rea envisioned that Centralia would one day become the center of commerce for the mountainous anthracite region because he now knew that underneath Centralia lay a large anthracite vein. But nothing could really be done with this raw material until around 1854 when the Mine Run Railroad was built because having the railroad now made it possible to transport mass quantities of coal out of the valley and distribute the coal to the big East Coast cities like Philadelphia and New York City. Mm -hmm. When that happened, the floodgates were opened and multiple coal mines, mines began popping up. By the time Centralia was incorporated as a borough in 1866, the anthracite coal industry was the main economy and principal employer bringing financial stability to Centralia's residents, and this remained the case 
until the mine fire broke out in 1962. Damn. So as we briefly discussed, the first miners in the area were all immigrants fleeing their own countries in search of a better life. And at first, they were just grateful to have jobs, jobs that they hadn't had you know the ability to get wherever they came from but working in coal mines had always been a dangerous and very hard job coal mining is physically demanding work and the miners would be exposed to things that made them sick things that often led them uh led to them dying of respiratory illness or cancer things like coal dust and toxic gases and the constant threat of cave-ins and explosions while working incredibly long hours for incredibly low wages Mm. Now, let's talk about the Molly Maguires, a secret society of Irish coal miners that operated in the coal region of eastern Pennsylvania in the mid to late 19th century. Wow. The Molly Maguires were named after a legendary Irish woman in 1840s Ireland who turned a group of peasants into a secret society and then led them in a battle against their oppressive landlords. Hmm. The Molly Maguires of Pennsylvania used violence and intimidation tactics to fight against the oppressive working conditions that they had faced in the mines. And they targeted mine owners, foremen, basically anyone who they perceived to be part of the ruling class. In order to make their point and achieve their goals, the Molly Maguires participated in acts of arson, theft, sabotage, and even murder, which is how Alexander Rea, the founder of Centralia, came to meet his violent end. Oh, boy. On October 17th, 1868, just two years after his beloved Centralia became an official Pennsylvania town with a post office and a zip code... And a McDonald's. Alexander was driving his buggy from the nearby town of Mount Carmel back home to Centralia when he was ambushed on a dark road by a band of Molly Maguires who murdered him and stole all the money he had on his person. Hmm. Although the Molly Maguires are legend in American history, they didn't actually operate for that long. Many of their members would have would be rounded up and arrested. And in the 1870s, several high-profile trials were held that culminated with the leaders of the movement being hanged. Hmm. Evidently, it was also the Molly Maguires who indirectly brought a curse (laughs) to Centralia. Okay, then. Father Daniel Ignatius McDermott was a 25-year-old priest. Again, I'm picturing John Travolta for some reason. Who had only been ordained for 10 months when he arrived in Centralia to set up the town's Catholic parish. Father McDermott was responsible for constructing Centralia's first church at the top of a hill on South Locust Avenue a church that would be called St. Ignatius Roman Catholic Church. Those of you who have seen the movie Silent Hill will recognize this church. It's featured in the movie, but maybe you aren't familiar with the real-life legend that's attached to it. I am not. After town founder Alexander Rea was murdered, the Molly Maguires were basically the first and, well, only suspects. I mean... It was their style, after all, and this angered Father McDermott, who began using church services to talk all kinds of shit about the (laughs) Irish Secret Society, whose members he not only suspected, but he knew. They sat in front of him with their heads quietly bowed every Sunday. Mm. Now, remember, the Molly McGuire's were a secret society, so only the inside people who were in the group knew who the members were. But they were coal miners who lived in Centralia and other areas, and Father McDermott knew that there were Molly Maguires living in his town. 
and that there were townspeople who were keeping their identity secret. Father McDermott felt that the Molly Maguires needed a good scolding for what they'd been doing. But the Molly Maguires did not back down from their violent ways. They didn't take his scolding very well. I see. And the way they let Father McDermott know this was by attacking him in the church cemetery one night in the spring of 1869. The legend claims that a battered and beaten Father McDermott staggered from the cemetery to his church and rang the church bell, waking the people of Centralia and summoning them to him, at which point Father McDermott announced that because the townspeople had closed ranks around the Molly Maguires, because the townspeople were protecting them and enabling them to continue with their violent ways, Centralia would be cursed, and a day would come that the entire town was leveled to the ground, leaving the church as the last structure standing. Now, if you visited Centralia today, you would find a ghost town, except for a church perched atop a hill overlooking the ruin of a town that its namesake had allegedly predicted, this prophecy would fade from public memory for a long time. And there's a lot about the whole legend that doesn't always add up. But in the 1980s, when the people of Centralia were forced to watch as the playgrounds their children had played on were torn to the ground and their beloved homes and businesses were leveled to dust, Father McDermott's curse was suddenly a topic of conversation Again. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. Remember what that guy said? Fucking A, bro. Right. What happened? But we'll, we'll get to all that. Centralia reached its maximum population of 2,761 people in 1890, and Pennsylvania coal was fueling the growth of the United States. Coal was responsible for supporting the growth, growing steel industry, and millions of tons of coal were rolling out of the Appalachian Mountains and being delivered to homes in big cities on the East Coast to keep their residents nice and toasty. The mining industry flourished, and the town grew, eventually consisting of seven churches, five hotels, 27 saloons, (laughs) two theaters, a bank, a post office, and 14 general and grocery stores. And 700 brothels. Although time seemed frozen within the confines of a small town mountain community like Centralia, the outside world was moving along and the time of coal being king was rapidly coming to a screeching halt. Anthracite coal production reached its peak in 1917, at which point several things happened. World War II broke out, pulling many young men from the mines as they enlisted in the military and or shipped out to fight a war that was extremely bloody that many of them would not return from and i think that we're we're in 2023 and it's very easy to forget the sacrifice that so many people have made throughout history world war one how brutal world war one was all right world war two the civil war these are some of the most bloody wars in the history of the world these are wars where the death toll is unimaginable And you've got these young guys who grew up in this mining town, and they're doing dangerous work in the mines. And they're pulled from the mines, and they're thrown on the front lines by their government to fight a war they didn't ask for. Mm. So it's really important to always be respectful of veterans and respectful of the people who today still fight to protect this country. But also remember remember the people from the past who did this. Because there was a draft. Most of them didn't have a choice. And a lot, but, you know, there were, there was a lot of them that wanted to do it. A lot of them wanted to go and fight and protect their country. But with so many men leaving for the war, 
so many not coming home after the war. This caused a drastic labor shortage and reduced output of coal from towns like Centralia. After the war, consistent labor and union strikes continued to reduce production, and the 1929 stock market crash exacerbated things even further, causing the Lehigh Valley Coal Company, who had taken over the coal mines in Centralia, to basically close all five of its mines, putting thousands of people out of a job during a time when they needed one the most. Mm -hmm. But if it's one thing history has shown us, humankind is resilient and we will always find a way to survive. During this time, even though mining wasn't officially happening on the books, bootleg mining was very popular. And bootleg mining was a term used during the Great Depression to describe an illegal and extremely dangerous practice of entering an abandoned or closed down mine and extracting coal without the proper equipment or safety precautions. Holy fuck. Right. (laughs) Okay, first of all, this practice that they were doing, which... I understand why they were doing it. Sure. I mean, they yeah. were broke and they needed to do something. But this practice posed a huge risk to the individuals participating in it because the mines were poorly ventilated and structurally unsound. So bootleg miners were often killed in cave-ins or mine explosions. And many would eventually come to suffer from something called black lung disease. Huh. And this happens when coal dust is inhaled And it accumulates in the lungs and causes inflammation, scarring, uh, and damage to the lung tissue over time, which can lead to a number of respiratory issues. And in severe cases, black lung can lead to death Mm. because it prevents oxygen from being absorbed into your lungs. So this bootleg mining was dangerous to the people doing it, but it was also a huge issue for the structure of the mines. Some bootleg miners used a technique called pillar robbing. Okay. That sounds very (laughs) professional. Which means they would extract material from coal pillars in the mines. holding up the fucking mine. Yeah. So these coal pillars were just literally made out of coal. And the problem was those pillars had been carved and left intact by the original miners because those pillars were holding the ceiling up, basically. So that wasn't good. There's lots of different ways you can mine, but one is called room mining. I think I think it's, I've seen it or called a few things, but room mining. So basically, okay. the miners go in and they dig out a big chunk of coal so that they can go in and continue getting coal out of the walls and stuff. But when they do this, when they would dig out a room inside of the earth where the coal was, they would leave some coal in the form of pillars right. to support the ceiling. So it's it's like a sign of like we're, we need to not be greedy here in right. this particular so we don't die. Right. So when those were gone, uh, what was there to support the ceiling? So pillar robbing in the area of Centralia would cause the collapse of several abandoned mines, and the people of the time didn't know it. But these collapsed mines would make putting out the 1962 fire that started in the mines even more difficult, mm-hmm. impossible, one might say. After World War II, America woke up to a very different world. And we could talk about that for hours, the impact of World War II and how it changed society. But for our purposes today, let's focus on fuel. For generations, coal had been the number one choice for running engines, for transporting, bringing heat to homes. But in the early 20th century, people started using oil as a substitute for coal because it was more available than coal in many parts of the world because it was easier and cheaper to extract and transport. 
and because it was considered to burn cleaner and be better for the environment. There's more punch to it, too. Now, admittedly, coal mining is bad for the environment. Okay, so who's ready for a bit of a lesson on coal? This was interesting (laughs) to me. I I got excited about it. Me, me. What is coal, and what is the process of coal mining? Dinosaur. No, it's not. (laughs) Now, these might sound like boring questions, which will provide boring answers, but I find the whole thing fascinating, and I think you will, too. So just bear with me. So coal is a non-renewable fossil fuel that, when combusted, can be used for energy. Coal is formed from the remains of ancient organisms, and because coal takes millions of years to form, it's a non-renewable resource. Right. Although... But there is a fuckload of it because it's all the plants and animals of all of... Right. Well, you wouldn't know it from the way it was mined, the way they mined it for centuries. Oh, right. They're just, gimme, gimme, gimme. Yeah. Well, now, according to National Geographic, quote, the conditions that would eventually create coal began to develop about 300 million years ago. During this time, Earth was covered with wide, shallow seas and dense forests. The seas occasionally flooded the forest areas, trapping plants and algae at the bottom of a swampy wetland. So over time, the plants, mostly mosses and algae, were buried and compressed under the weight of overlying mud and vegetation. As the plant debris sifted deeper under the Earth's surface, it encountered increased temperatures and higher pressure. Mud and acidic water prevented the plant matter from coming into contact with oxygen. Due to this, the plant matter decomposed at a very slow rate and retained much of its carbon. These areas of buried plant matter are called peat bogs. Mm -hmm. Peat bogs store massive amounts of carbon, many meters underground. Peat itself can be burned for fuel and is actually a major source of heat energy in countries such as Scotland, Ireland, and Russia. Under the right conditions, peat transforms into coal through a process called carbonization. Carbonization takes place under incredible heat and pressure. About 3 meters or 10 feet of layered vegetation eventually compresses into a third of a meter or one foot of coal. Damn. End quote. Gold dang. So interesting, right? I thought lot, it was interesting. A lot of life forms and a little bit of coal. Right. Yeah. So that's how coal's made. And it's this time, intense, time-consuming process to make this thing that, you know, can provide energy all on its own. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought that was really cool. Really cool concept. But coal exists in underground formations that are called coal beds, or sometimes they're called coal seams. And a coal seam can be as thick as 90 feet and stretch over 900 miles. So the coal seam is just going to be like this, be straight coal, like right 90 feet for over 900 miles, 90 feet deep, just straight coal. For the first 200 years, coal was mined with little thought or consideration for the consequences. When all available coal was extracted from one mine, they would move on to another area dig another mine and that original mine would just be abandoned and forgotten about instead of returning to the earth to its previous condition or like filling it in or something Mm. they just left this big old gaping hole right now coal can be extracted from the earth through the process of surface mining or underground mining now, surface mining is used when the coal is located less than 200 feet underground. We're just picking it up off the ground. Right? Kind of, yeah. So, And all the miners have to do is simply just remove the overlying dirt, sediment, and vegetation. So that stuff's called over 
overburden in the coal mining industry. But all they have to do is remove that overburden, and then they can dig in and get to the coal. Financially, surface mining is faster and cheaper, but environmentally, it is completely devastating. Mm. And it has destroyed entire habitats and ecosystems. Now, underground mining is when the coal seam is too deep to be reached by surface mining. Mm. And this is when tunnels are dug into the earth to reach the coal seam. And this was the method used in Centralia, and it created a subterranean world of tunnels and rooms, kind of like an ant farm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) By 1980, the population in Centralia had dwindled down to about a thousand residents because this was no longer a flourishing mine town at this point. And by 2020, only five of those people remained. And that was because living conditions between 1980 and 2020 in the town had gotten so bad that most people felt they had no other choice but to leave. Well, that's good. At least we'll only offend five people if they're like, hey, that's our town here. Shit, no. Well, it all started on May 7th, 1962, when members of the Centralia Council met to discuss plans for the upcoming Memorial Day celebrations. Now, just for the record, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but the version of events I'm about to tell you, those are considered to be what actually haven't so the official narrative but of course there are some people especially those who lived in centralia at the time who believed that the mine fire was no accident and it was done purposely to drive them out of their town and out of their homes so that someone else could come in and have access to that very profitable and valuable anthracite coal Hmm. we're going to talk more about that later Uh, so memorial day was a very important holiday to the people of centralia I mean, it's an important holiday to a lot of people, but specifically for the people who live in Centralia at that time, the town would put on a huge parade that would go from cemetery to cemetery to honor the dead and to allow families to visit the grave sites of their deceased loved ones. But there was a slight problem because the town had recently opened a new landfill earlier that year, and one end of that landfill was very close to the northeast corner of Oddfellows Cemetery. So really close, like a couple hundred feet away. Now, of course, the landfill had normal issues that piles of garbage bring along with it. You know, pretty strong and disgusting smells and rodents. The Centralia Council didn't want to put a damper on the Memorial Day celebrations with stinky trash and rats running around all over the place. So they started talking about ways they could clean up the dump before May 30th. And they decided, hey... Let's set that shit on fire. Oh, I wonder who that person is. Uh-huh. Boy, oh boy. That dump was up next to the cemetery, and they wanted to burn it off. So it wouldn't be stinking, you know, around the cemetery. Now, there's a few things that we need to keep in mind here. One, the landfill was actually a strip mine that had been excavated in 1935. It was 300 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 50 feet deep. What we also need to remember is that the state of Pennsylvania had enacted a law in 1956-1956 which regulated the use of old strip mines as landfills because they had caused fires before. Oh, fuck. Centralia would be able to use the old mine as a landfill, but they had to get a permit and they had to allow I also had to allow a landfill inspector from the State Department of Mines and Mineral Industries to inspect the landfill on a regular basis to make sure it was still safe and up to code. So what the, the last time he came, it was like, not on fire. <laughs> See you next year, guys. 
comes back later like it's on what the fuck come on now now according to the book fire underground by david decock the inspector approved the site for the centralia landfill but quote was concerned about several holes in the walls and the floor of the pit Pennsylvania strip mines often slice through old, deep mines, and this one was no exception. End Whatever quote. says Mr. DeCock. <laughs> Sorry. The inspector was like, hey, yeah, you guys got holes in your pit that you want to <laughs> use for garbage? And we're going to need to make sure that those holes are filled with some incombustible material so that if there is a fire... Uh, this incombustible material would stop the flames from spreading into the holes and then going on into nearby mines, which would then cause an issue, obviously, right. uh, because it's fire. Nobody's going to listen to this guy, though, I bet. And what's, by the way, and it's a fire. And what's in the nearby mines? Yeah. Anthracite coal. Right. And what is anthracite coal? Super coal. A fuel that once you set it on fire burns hot and long. Fuck. So the proper measures to fill these holes must have been taken, right? Of course. That's right? how governments do Because things. plans for the landfill went and ahead, and they were as they were supposed to. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming, right? Yep. Now, something else we need to know is that it wasn't technically legal to set dumps on fire. It wasn't technically legal at that time to just set your garbage dump on fire. But according to the Centralia Council... It was a common practice for them to call in the volunteer fire department and have them set fire to various trash dumps on the outskirts of town every spring. Francis Gonsalves, a member of the Centralia Fire Company, said, quote, Every year, Holy Wednesday, we used to call it before Easter, we used to go and burn the dumps. We had nine of them in town, and we used to put them out the same night, rinse them with a the fire truck, end quote. Hmm. And so that was exactly what they did with this new landfill by the uh, Oddfellow Cemetery. They lit the trash inside the pit on fire, and they let it burn for hours. And when everything that could be seen on the surface of the trash heap was burned and charred, five firemen poured water inside the pit until the flames went out. Uh, But what they didn't know was that although they could no longer see the fire... It was still actively burning. Never trust a flame. Deep inside the multiple layers of garbage, this fire continued on, devouring trash, biding its time to reach the surface until the material and the debris on top of it had dried. And then the fire ate through that as well. So, listen, they set the fire. The fire's burning. They pour water on it, which is fine. They didn't know the fire had gone so low into the garbage. So there's all this dry garbage underneath. And the water they poured on it didn't penetrate to. And the fire is smolding. And it's like trying to come up through the rest of the garbage. But it's still kind of damp on top. So it had to wait until it was thoroughly dried out. Then the fire flared up through that. Shit. On May 29th, the evening before the Memorial Day celebration, a man named George Jones was walking through Oddfellow Cemetery, checking to make sure everything was neat and orderly and ready for the visitors. And that was when he spotted smoke rising from the landfill. Hmm. So he obviously walked over to check it out. He looked down inside the pit and saw flames. So he reported it immediately. The fire department was called again. And again, they filled the pit with water from 9 p.m. until 2 a.m. And again, they saw flames extinguished. But once again, the fire burned underneath and continued to burn for several days, at which point 
The confused council figured out that the fire had spread to the underground network of old abandoned cold mines. The thing they didn't want to happen. And they figured this out because when they were inside the pit, they could see steam coming from the cracks in the pit wall. And this steam tested positive for carbon monoxide. Shit. It is generally generally believed that the Centralia fire mine fire began in 1962 when burning garbage in the municipal dump ignited an exposed vein of coal. So they could have a memorial party. Right. Once lit, the fire gradually crept through abandoned mine tunnels towards the town, endangering everything in its wake, including the timber and coal support pillars needed to prevent mine cave-ins. This fire produced deadly carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide gases, which rose through the mine shafts and cracks in the rock, seeping into the homes of people living above. So fire needs three things to burn this hard and this hot. And the earth beneath Centralia provided an abundance of all three things. It's called the fire triangle because the three components necessary for a fire to burn are fuel, oxygen, and heat. Once a fire starts with enough fuel and oxygen, it becomes uh, it can become self-supporting. In this case, the fuel would be anthracite coal, and that was still plentiful under the ground. As the coal burned, it created more heat, and this increase in heat then brings more and more coal around it to its ignition temperature and sets more coal on fire. Then the fire needs oxygen, which, once again, there was plenty of that underground, considering this labyrinth of old mines all had above-ground entrances that had never been closed up because they never went back and filled them in. They just left them open. Crocky fuck, this is how you build, uh, this is how you turn a planet into a sun. Yeah, this is how you want ants, because this is how you get ants. This is how you get ants, for sure. Those entrances were still open, flooding the tunnels with oxygen-rich air. But how had this happened in Centralia when the holes in the walls of that pit were supposed to have been filled with non-combustible material in order to prevent this very thing from happening? In order to prevent the landfill fire from spreading to the mines? Well, after a few unsuccessful attempts at putting out the fire with water, firemen had discovered something which clearly had gone unnoticed by everyone else. They tried to fill up the place with for non-combustible areas with nitroglycerin. Uh, Whoopsies. They discovered a very large hole on the north wall of the pit right by the cemetery. And this hole was 15 feet long and several feet high. So you might wonder, how did this go unnoticed? I know I wondered that. Mm. Like, how, do you, how the fuck do you miss that? Well, so, but reportedly, this enormous hole in the side of the wall of the side of the pit hadn't been seen by anyone because it was covered by dirt and debris. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I guess. And so when the other holes the mine inspector had been worried about, when those had been filled in with non-combustible material, mm-hmm. this very large and long hole had not. So it turned it so, into a, like a pipe. Right. <laughs> Almost immediately, town officials sprang into action once they figured out that water wasn't going to stop this blazing fire. The following June, the state of Pennsylvania gave Centralia some money to use a large machine in order to move the garbage around in the pit. And And basically, holy water. 
and basically get the whole thing wet like not just the top layers of garbage but the whole garbage jumble hmm. so they would stir the trash around get it wet and you know stir the trash around again <laughs> pour more water on it stir the trash around etc that sounds like that would work you know in theory obviously the idea behind this is if everything in the pit was wet the fire would have no place to go and it would be smothered and that's actually great in theory you know, it would have absolutely worked if they had done that initially within the first few days of realizing the fire in the garbage pit hadn't gone out. Mm. That may have solved the entire problem and we wouldn't be talking about this today. You know, somebody brought that up and they're like, shut up, Todd. If, right. <laughs> well, if that had been done initially instead of waiting over a month. But by the time they did this in June... The garbage pit really didn't even matter that much at this point because the fire had already moved past the garbage pit and it was spreading far beyond that landfill and deeper into the coal mines that branched out towards and underneath the town of Centralia. Now, of course, there was a ton of arguing going on amongst political peeps in Centralia. Todd was right. How should the fire be put out? How much money could they realistically devote to these efforts? And because of disagreements and, a, well, a lack of money, the first real effort to dig the fire out didn't even happen until the fall of 1962, which I think we can all agree, once again, too long to let a fire burn in coal mines mm. without doing anything to slow or stop it. Fuck. And as expected, when a section of ground was removed in order to create some sort of trench around the fire to sort of like starve it out and right. stop it in its tracks, they realized the fire had moved so fast that by the time the trench was excavated, the fire had already passed it. It just kept on going. Yeah. Not only that, but the fire had moved deeper into the earth than anyone had known or anticipated. And even if the trench had been dug in time, the fire would have breezed right by underneath it, so it wouldn't have mattered. Between 1962 and 1978, the state and federal government would spend $3.3 million trying, to, trying different things to stop or even slow the spread of the fire, but nothing worked. In 1962, the fire was still on the outskirts of town, and it hadn't gotten close to anyone's homes yet. But by 1967, people living in Centralia, specifically those living on Wood Street and Locust Avenue, they were getting nervous because their homes were closest to the burn zone and it appeared that it was getting closer every day. Two years later, uh, I think it was in 1969, people began to feel the effects of the fire. Headaches, you know, related to the poisonous gases from beneath the ground that were leaking into their homes. So on Wood Street, there were three houses in particular that had been affected pretty early on. The home of Anna Ryan, who was a widow. She lived in that house for 62 years. A family of five, which included William and Janet Burster, along with their three children. And next door to the Bursters lived Marion Laughlin, who was actually the mother of of Janet Burster. So as early as February of 1969, the Bursters and their children had been feeling really sick, mm. just randomly coming down with a lot of unexplained illnesses and symptoms. They were out of sorts. They were groggy. They just didn't feel good. By March, they were all getting headaches and feeling nauseated on a daily basis. And one night in late March, Janet Burster went next door to visit her mother, Marianne. And when Marion didn't answer the door, 
Janet let herself in, only to find her mother asleep on the sofa in front of a blaring television set. Now, it turned out that Marion Laughlin was suffering from exposure to carbon monoxide. So so were the rest of them, right? right? So, uh, so were the rest of the people in this area of Centralia who were just feeling sick all the time, every day. Now, carbon monoxide is found in the fumes produced any time you burn fuel. In cars, small engines, stoves, grills, fireplaces, furnaces, etc. Yeah, but, but can you tell me about the radon? <laughs> and it builds up indoors. And it can poison the people and the animals living there. And the scary thing is carbon monoxide is undetectable. It has no odor, no taste, no color. And people often have no idea they've been exposed, mm-hmm. especially since the early symptoms resemble those of like the common cold or, or, you know, flu, headache, weakness, dizziness, nausea, shortness of breath. And if left uh, exposed, you gain confusion, blurred vision, drowsiness, loss of muscle control, and eventually loss of consciousness. Mm-hmm. When Janet was finally able to awaken her mother, Marion, Marion claimed she thought she was having a stroke because her arms and legs were very heavy and they were stiff. Now, the next month in early April, Marion Laughlin received a beautiful flower, a plant for Easter. But by the next day, which was Easter, the plant was dead. As the rest of the week passed, plant after plant drooped withered and died in the home of Marion Laughlin and the others who lived on Wood Street. Hmm. On May 5th, 1969, several mine openings that were located just a few hundred feet from these homes on Wood Street were backfilled. Basically, uh, they, they went over and they filled up the entrances um, and closed them off. I guess this was done to try and starve the fire of oxygen and try and put it out. Even though there's tons of other mine openings and, you know, it's like a blazing, angry fire down there. Anyways, it didn't starve the fire of oxygen. All it did was increase the amount of poisonous gas entering the homes nearby. Oh, good. Because the mine shaft openings had been acting as vents for the gas to release the gas from underground into the air. Oh, fuck. But so were the houses, right? Mm. But when those mine openings were closed, the poisonous gas couldn't escape through there anymore. And it had nowhere else to go besides into the homes on right. Wood Street. It's weird. Backfilling those entrances actually increased the amount of carbon monoxide entering these houses. And according to the book Fire Underground, quote, when the new mine work commenced on May 5th, matters seemed to worsen. Although none of the affected citizens made the connection, the houses smelled musty, even with the windows open, and their nausea, headaches, drowsiness, and now shortness of breath grew worse. Hmm. On May 15th, Janet Burster's coal furnace went out, and she was unable to relight it. The match flames died before she could light the kindling paper. Hmm. End quote. Now that's scary. Yeah. You know you know why that's scary? Hmm. That means there's literally not enough oxygen in the environment that Janet Burster was standing in to sustain a match flame. She's probably, yeah. Right. How Your body can't do that. No. Uh, very scary. So on May 16th, Marion Laughlin, uh, remember she's Janet Burster's mother, she invited a guy friend over for coffee after a date, and they got back to her house. And as soon as she stepped into the house, she started vomiting. And then she laid down on her couch and basically passed out. Oh, wow. Her date, the guy was like, 
you know, what's going on. He, he kind of like just, he sat there and he waited with her and wanted to make sure she was okay. And later, Marion said she had no idea that he was still there. Hmm. But basically, that experience was enough for Marion. And the next day, she left her house and stayed with a relative in Ashland. And Marion, along with others, were starting to realize it was no longer safe in their homes. But most of them didn't want to leave, and right. even more of them couldn't afford to leave. Yeah. They couldn't afford to relocate or even spend a few nights in a motel. When the Burster's canary... Their bird was found dead at the bottom of its cage on May 18th. William and Janet made arrangements to stay with Janet's brother, who was also living in Centralia at the time. The literal canary in the coal mine. Right. Well, and I guess that they were feeling positive or, or hopeful. Like the town will figure this out and this will just be a temporary thing where we're not in our home. But it wasn't temporary. The Bureau of Mines drilled some boreholes behind the houses on Wood Street. So boreholes are deep holes, but they're narrow. And they're made in the ground, basically, to detect what's going on under the ground. And they found in the holes that were 25 feet away from uh, those original three houses of concern that we talked about, Mm -hmm. temperatures coming out of those holes were between 65, you know, not too bad, and 128 degrees. Which is hot, right? Mm-hmm. You know that higher temp is still not a great temperature that you want coming out of the ground 25 feet away from your house. But when they went about 120 feet away from those boreholes and tested again, they found that the temperatures were between 760 Fuck. and 900 degrees. Fuck. So, yeah, that means right by the house is 25 feet from the houses. It's not super hot yet. But a little further out, 120 feet away, that's like ridiculously hot. (laughs) And that's moving towards where people are living at this point. As of now, there have been over 2,000 boreholes drilled into the Centralia Mine Fire area. And they were drilled to locate, monitor, and control the fire. And and a review of borehole temperatures from the 1970s and 80s show multiple readings of over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the highest recorded temperature, um, with the highest recorded temperature being 1,350 degrees Fahrenheit. And at the time, ground temperatures... The surface ground temperatures measured at over 900 degrees Fahrenheit. So nice. it's like 15, uh, 1,350 degrees under the ground and 900 degrees on the ground, which is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Wow. I mean, your bird lands there. That wouldn't be it able to It wouldn't be able to. Just catch on fire. And- According to, I know, burst in flames. Yeah. According to CentraliaPA.org, After pressure from the residents, the Bureau of Mines agreed to dig a small trench to protect the homes along Wood Street by the end of 1969. And they also began building an extensive fly ash barrier. But once again, by the time that barrier was completed in 1974, the fire had already moved past it. Oh, shit. So I'm curious. And there's why, Todd. Todd's like, I keep telling you guys this right. You guys got to listen to Todd. So why is it taking five flipping years to dig a trench and make a barrier? I'm confused. Mm. I'm really confused. Fair I watched money. a lot of... It is. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah, it is a problem. Um, once again, it's because of money. We're going to run into this constantly. Money is not readily available in this area of Pennsylvania. 
Sure. They weren't able to get the funding that they needed from the state or from the federal government. And basically anything that they wanted to do, they were kind of stopped in their tracks because of lack of funding. See, what they needed was a GoFundMe back then. People would have acted faster. <laughs> For a long time, the officials in Centralia refused to accept that their barrier had been breached because this was like their Hail Mary. You know, they were hanging on, hanging their hat on this barrier. It took five freaking years to build. So these officials pretty much ignored all the signs that the fire continued to burn and move underneath their town. It's almost like we won't acknowledge it and it'll make it go away. Pretend they, it doesn't exist. They just didn't listen to Todd. <laughs> By 1977, the fire had been raging for 15 years. And according to CentraliaPA.org, quote, News of the deadly mine gases in Centralia had reached the news media. The Bureau of Mines scrambled to act. Later that year, they began drilling new boreholes to determine the integrity of the fly ash barrier. The results were not comforting. While several areas were intact, many were partially compromised or completely non-existent." Mm -hmm. End quote. So they couldn't just take the signs of the fire into account, like massive levels of carbon monoxide inside people's homes. The massively high ground temperatures and below surface temperatures were just getting more and more hot the closer you got to people's homes. They didn't want to take any of that into account. They had to drill holes and check for themselves that their barrier had failed in many places, uh, allowing the fire to continue spreading. Hmm was so frustrating. So now in June of 1979, something happened at Centralia's only gas and service station, which at the time was located on Locust Avenue and directly in the path of the mine fire. Uh It was the morning of November 21st, 1979, when John Coddington, a lifelong resident of Centralia, a retired miner and an owner and operator of Coddington's gas station, He noticed wisps of steam coming from the ground of a vacant lot right next to his gas station. So he went and he took the temperature of that steam. And when the temperature of that steam was measured, it was found to have been 122 degrees Fahrenheit. A few weeks later, John Coddington once again noticed something out of the ordinary in his own gas station. He saw steam coming through the dirt floor of the basement. Uh And maybe that wouldn't have been such a big deal, except for the fact that underneath that basement floor sat four underground tanks holding a total of 9,000 gallons of gasoline. That's going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. And if that gasoline got hot enough, the tanks were sure to explode, which would, would be like a bomb going off. Everything would be destroyed. John Coddington and his service station would surely not be there anymore. John Coddington went to town officials and then the town of Centralia called in the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Resources. And they came and they measured the temperature of the basement floor and they found it to be 136 degrees Fahrenheit. It was also discovered that, sure enough, the temperature of the gasoline in the underground tanks was rising. (laughs) So the Pennsylvania State Fire Marshal ordered that the four tanks be drained and refilled with water. And basically, they told John Coddington, hey, sorry, we got to shut you down. Mm -hmm. In early December 1979, John Coddington's gas station was closed for good, and it would become one of the first structures in Centralia to be demolished just a few years later in 1981. 
Over the next decades, the fires would burn through the coal beneath the town, and officials say the exact amount of coal that has been burned and will be burned by this fire is impossible to estimate because the fire has been going now for over 50 years. Jeez. And it's expected to burn for another 100. The Centralia mine fire has expanded beyond the Centralia borough boundaries. There's no telling when or where it'll stop. By the 1980s, the people of Centralia were begging their government officials for help. Every time they asked for something, they were told, it takes time. <laughs> it, takes, it takes time. It takes money. You have to wait. There's other problems all over the country. These are quotes, by the way. Hmm. There's other problems all over the country. They were told they were too emotional about the situation. They were told that they had to realize that the congressmen had other problems to tend to. It said that someone would have to die before anyone paid attention to what was happening in the deteriorating Pennsylvania mining town that had become victim to the coal that had once been so profitable for them. Right. What have you done for me lately? That's the world. This is where we're going to end the story for today. I'm going to come back next week with the second part. You cliffhangered us. Of this crazy story. Although we do know that the city is on fire. Yes. <laughs> it's on fire, but there's more. I, I thought the about. gas station was for sure going to go up. It didn't. Um, they it did didn't. something right. Yeah. So we'll talk more about this next week. Uh, I'm not going to extend past two on this one. It was just too much for one. It's a lot of fun stuff. This was a lot of fun. Let's talk about it on the other side of the thingy. Yeah. And now it's time for the end of the show. All right, since this is a, a two-parter, we're, mm-hmm. we won't talk too much. But holy crap, I had no idea about it, a lot of this stuff. Isn't that interesting? Including American history, about the Morris guy. It was and so other cool. People. Yeah, thank you for sharing this with You're us. You're welcome. I look forward to next week. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And, you know, let's, there's not much to talk about until the full end of this thing. Right. So we'll, we'll have a big old discussion at the end of next week's yeah. episode. But thank you for listening. Yes. And as always, we'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye. Bing, bong, bing, bing, bong, bing, 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 bing,